0: Hello, and welcome to Live Like the World is Dying, your ostensibly weekly, but not actually weekly podcast about what feels like the end times. I'm your host, Margaret Kiljoy. I use she and they pronouns. And with me this week is someone to talk about medical stuff, Uh, but I didn't actually bother to ask them what name and pronoun and stuff they want to use on the show, so... Do you want to introduce yourself with your name, pronouns, and then any organizational or political affiliation you might feel is relevant to the audience or to what you're going to talk about?
1: Yeah, my name is Bex, I use she, her, and I'm an anarchist and I work with different uh, street medic collectives and as well as other organizing projects in the Pacific
0: Northwest. This show is a proud member of the Channel Zero Network of Anarchist Podcasts, and here's a jingle from another show on the network. Good morning, slaves. Looking for relief from the steaming hot plate of bullshit served
1: up on the daily by the mainstream media? Are you thirsting for solid and reliable information To escape the mind-numbing vortex of corporate news and Trump tweets? Are you ready to check out every time you hear Despacito on the radio one more fucking time? Then tune your dial to Sub.media, a mouth-watering hub of infotainment and subversion that'll make you want to quit your job and join the motherfucking resistance. Dive into our newly designed website and gorge yourself on one of the 500-plus videos and audio tracks from our vast library of anarchist films, hip-hop, and riot porn, or choose from one of our original shows. Like Trouble, Burning Cop Car, A for Anarchy, Video Ninja Reports, and
0: The Stimulator. Fuck Netflix. Watch Sub.media. Um, so I wanted to have you on to talk about something that I hate hearing about, which is medical stuff, uh, especially traumatic wound <laughs> stuff. Um, I think you know this because we talked about it before. This episode, but for everyone listening, I'm incredibly squeamish and I have the hardest time dealing with medical stuff. So I guess I kind of want to not only make a content warning for this episode for anyone who's listening that it's going to talk about the insides of bodies and things like that, that some of us try to go through our lives without thinking about, Um, but also to sort of say that it's worth, unfortunately, it's kind of worth challenging yourself if you can, if you're somewhere where it feels good to to um, hear about medical stuff. Um, I know that's what I'm going to be doing this particular time because I have a very hard time <laughs> with all of this. I try to believe that the inside of my body is a ball of white light and uh, that's how I go through the day. But <laughs> what I do when I'm learning medical stuff is I kind of forget the truth. The truth is that my b- body is filled with white light. I I temporarily choose to forget that and pretend like my body is made up of meat and blood and learn what to do if my body were made up of those things, which it's not. And then what happens is when I get injured and I'm the one who has to deal with it, which happens way more often than I wish was the case, I once again temporarily forget the truth that my body is made up of white light and pretend like it's made of muscle and bone and deal with it. And so maybe that'll work for you, maybe not. Uh, maybe this is actually a fairly unique thing that I struggle with. I don't know. Um uh, But yeah, we're gonna be talking about what happens when you or someone else, probably mostly we're gonna talk about what to do with someone else, gets shot. Because suddenly that's a threat model that is more present um yeah and so i guess one of the reasons i wanted to have you specifically on the show backs is that you have treated a gunshot wound at a demonstration before and mm-hmm. i was wondering if in as much as you feel comfortable sharing that story if you could tell that story
1: yeah i would be happy to and first let me just say that um it's true that talking about uh, traumatic injuries, talking about blood and guts, talking about gunshot wounds specifically is really intense. This is incredibly intense subject matter, um, both in terms of feeling squeamish, and also just in terms of like emotionally the impact of having to reckon with the fact that we are living in a society today where dealing with gunshot wounds is something that might come up at literally any, any moment, whether from a, uh, in a protest scenario, in a, you know, in a school, in a workplace, um, the threat of gun violence is just so real and so prevalent. And I feel like it's important for, um, for folks to, to know how to respond, because being able to respond with a place of, um, you know, feeling empowered and like you have some agency over uh, your your ability to respond rather than coming from a place of shock and fear um, can really make a life or death dif- difference for the people that you're interacting with who've been injured. So my experience of treating a person who had received a gunshot wound was at a demonstration and I had, I was first trained as a street medic by uh, the Rose Hit Medic Collective out of Portland back around 2010 um so i had been and this incident happened just a few years ago so i had been medicing for um, quite some time at that point but i was not prepared necessarily to deal with a gunshot wound because that just wasn't something that had come up in my list of things to be concerned about while medicing a protest scenario Um, whereas things like chemical weapons blunt force injury you know, people getting shoved around by bike cops or stepped on by a horse or all kinds of other things that entered my scenarios of like what I was imagining, what I was prepared for. And, and gunshot wound just hadn't quite gotten there yet. Um, so my experience at that demonstration was, uh, like many people there, hearing this noise that a lot of us assumed was uh, a firework or a flashbang or something like this hearing people calling for a medic responding to that and realizing that I was dealing with a gunshot wound victim. Um, it was a gunshot to the, uh, sort of abdominal area. I started working on this patient along with another medic, um, pulled all the gauze I had out of my kit was applying pressure to the wound, talking to the patient, um, sort of mind reeling with like, holy shit, I'm suddenly in what feels like way over my head. Um, And the other medic there did have a, like a, a trauma dressing and was getting that out of their kit. And then at this point, the police came and sort of forcibly pulled myself and the other medic off of the patient, kicked our supplies across the ground pushed us back and made a circle around the, the victim and continued to treat that person uh, not in a, you know, with a level of care that I think is inadequate. Um, but the person did end up surviving. So, you know, it is what it is, but it was like a very, uh, I'd say it was a pretty traumatic experience for me of one watching police intervene and then give a lesser level of care. The other medic was trying to offer the trauma dressing, which it didn't seem like the police had who were treating this person. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, that assistance was being refused. Uh, Just like seeing this come up in a protest scenario and realizing like, holy shit, this could have happened to, this could have been me. This could have been anyone else here. Um, It was just really startling and pretty, uh, uh, yeah, just really like shook my understanding of what exactly we were dealing with and what the threats we were dealing with. And and that really uh, pushed me to be much more vigilant about um, being prepared for all possible scenarios not just the things that seem most likely, but what are the most extreme things that we have seen happen at uh demonstrations and then assuming that those really could happen um anywhere and that they're happening more and more frequently um and being prepared for that and trying to help other people be prepared for that as well so that all of us can react from a place of feeling like okay this is like a really intense and scary situation but i know what to do and i have the supplies on me to to help try to save this person's life rather than holy shit i really never mm-hmm. thought i was ever going to see someone get shot like
0: Wow. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I've, I still somehow have it in my head that I'm never going to see anyone get shot, even though I've been at demonstrations where gunshots have gone off, you know, I, it still doesn't occur to me that they could hit someone, even though they do and have. Um, So that, that makes me think of a couple different things. One of the things that I've been thinking about a lot, and I've been talking with a lot of friends about is just how much the threat model has changed over the past uh for me about 20 years or so of demonstrations you know where it's gone from everyone should have a water bottle to flush out people's eyes from pepper spray but then like mm-hmm. you don't need a lot more medical stuff than that because you can have sort of specialized medics in the crowd to we're reaching this place where a lot of what i've been hearing is this idea that everyone should have uh, an IFAC or Individual First Aid Kit. Um, and that that level of change is, is dramatic and it, it's sometimes hard to wrap my head around.
1: Yeah, I think that is the change that we're looking at. And just to clarify for listeners, when we talk about an Individual First Aid Kit or an IFAC, that's not like, um, oh, some... Band-Aids and Tylenol that you would use as your first aid kit for yourself in a, you know, your day-to-day life. But that's specifically referring to uh, like a a trauma response kit. So we can get into more details around this, but an IFAC um, is specifically for major trauma or major bleeds and usually involves things like pressure bandages, hemostatic dressing, tourniquet, et cetera, and are specifically designed to respond to those kind of major traumas and not to just sort of your everyday first aid needs.
0: And so one of the things that I think you've talked about this, um, and I'm wondering, I guess you can talk about it again, is, is sort of this idea of, it seems like there's a lot of different reasons why as many people as possible should have IFACs on them. And it seems like one of those is maybe that it's not just for you the medic but it's also for hmm. it's not necessarily the reason for me let's say if currently i'm not particularly trained at dealing with gunshot wounds although i'm working to to fix that but i would maybe carry an ifac into a demonstration because if i get shot then the supplies are available Um, and i guess if if you want to talk about the proliferation of ifac as a like thing for people to carry and whether i'm off base or not
1: No, I think absolutely. It's something that, um, everyone who can access this and you can build a kit for around a hundred to $150. So there's certainly a barrier to accessibility there. Um, but anyone who can carry one absolutely should, because you are totally right. It's not just for you as a medic ready to respond to a gunshot wound, but also you as a potential victim or you as a potential bystander when there's someone else who may have uh, the skills or ability to respond, but doesn't have a kit on them. Um, It's also not just about gunshot wounds, the things that are in an IFAC will also equip you to deal with uh, a stabling wound, uh, potential injuries from a car accident. Um, I keep mine in my car in a fanny pack clipped to the passenger seat so that it's with me everywhere i go because you know particularly uh thinking about car accidents i want to have this with me if i'm responding to someone with a major bleed um out on the road somewhere so it's something that is i think people should absolutely have at demonstration and protest scenarios in this day and age when we are seeing shootings stabbings and um weaponized car attacks, just sort of like proliferating more and more. We have to be ready to respond.
0: Yeah. One of the things that you were talking about a moment ago also is how the police came and essentially made things worse. Um, Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I've been constantly surprised, it's amazing how I I still find myself surprised by like the the evilness and incompetence of like the far right or like, you know, in the same Uh way that like I'm constantly... I think I'm like this cynical feminist and every now and then I just hear like yet another way that patriarchy like makes everyone's lives worse, right? And Mm -hmm. I think that watching police make shit worse in like in this situation somehow is still kind of not eye-opening but like deepens this, uh, this awareness of their role in society. The first time I talked to my first friend who got trained at my first anarchist friend who got trained as an EMT it was back in like 2003. And he, he came home one day and he was really shook up. And I was like, what happened? And he was like, I just lost my first patient. And I was like, what happened? And he was like, he heard a car accident and ran out with a first aid kit. And even legally had the authority in that state to order the police around you know, um, because mm-hmm. he was a, a licensed DMT and, uh, and the police sh- shooed him away and, uh, and, you know, he, he watched the man die. And from his point of view, he had, att- he had taken responsibility for that, that patient. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I'm I just, there's no situation. The police
1: are not our friends. They're usually, um, not skilled at or highly trained in you know emergency medicine response. This is not what they are designed for or what they're used for and they are often either just unhelpful or actively harmful in a in an emergency medical situation unfortunately and unsurprisingly
0: yeah even in but
1: it's still shocking to see someone in a position of power and authority actively intervening to worsen the outcome of a of a traumatic injury victim,
0: yeah so I guess we can get into the i've been sort of you know i'm procrastinating um uh, getting into <laughs> the uh the the meat of the matter um
1: as it were yeah <laughs>
0: um okay so you were not equipped with an IFAC when you responded to a gunshot wound and participated in saving this person's life. Um, Uh And yet you were able to uh, do a lot of work to stop the bleed and help this person. Um, And do you want to talk about how to, I guess... uh, Does it make sense to start by talking about how you would handle a gunshot wound when you do have the proper equipment? Or does it make sense to start talking about what to do when you're not equipped? We're going to talk about both, but which one makes more sense to cover first?
1: Yeah, well, I think that we can sort of talk about them uh, side by side, actually. Um, You know, with each step of going through how you would deal with responding to a gunshot wound what's the equipment you would really want to have with you and what do you do if you don't have that? Um, so we can, I think we can just go through it that way. Okay.
0: So you are hanging out at a protest and everything's fine. And then someone gets shot. What do you do?
1: good i like this this scenario here i mean i don't like this scenario but it's a good it's a good setup for talking about it um but before Mm -hmm. i go into how i would respond in this scenario um i'd like to just talk a little bit about sort of the physics of a gunshot wound because i think that will help Mm. um helps people understand you know what is this injury and therefore why why do we treat it the way that we do okay uh so a gunshot wound is just a unpredictable and incredibly serious puncture wound that results in severe bleeding and tissue damage Uh, gunshot wounds can present very differently when they're on different parts of the body and also based on the size of the projectile the bullet and the speed that it was traveling so what i'm trying to say is a gunshot wound from different types of guns and from different ranges will result in really different types of injury Mm -hmm. um When someone is shot, there will almost always, in most cases, there will be two wounds, uh, an entry wound and an exit wound. Uh, And so if you're treating a gunshot wound victim, you want to make sure that you've identified all of the wounds on that person's body. Because if you're effectively treating one wound, but they're bleeding out from the exit wound on their back, then you're not actually stopping the bleed. You're only stopping half the problem. So... You really want to keep that in mind that you need to find all the wounds on the victim's body and also to note that uh part of why gunshot wounds are so unpredictable is that bullet a bullet can actually once it enters the body can ricochet off bones um, or other things and exit or travel through the body in really unpredictable ways so it's not just like here's your, here's where the bullet enters, here's a straight line through their body and here's where it's exiting. Uh, It can be in a really surprising, you know, there can be a really surprising pattern or it can be hard to find an exit wound. Um, There are situations in which a bullet can get lodged in someone's body and there wouldn't be an exit wound, but in general, there usually will be. So it's important to like really rule that out and make sure that you've found all of the bleeds that are happening okay um yeah so that's just a little bit about what a gunshot wound actually is and how we're you know how it sort of works and yeah just want to lay that foundation first
0: okay does it make sense to like you know is this like too much to ask of like situational awareness does like does it make sense to be like if you hear gunshots count them so that you have like a maximum number of wounds you're looking for, or is that sort of?
1: Yeah, I mean that would be great if you if you can do that, or if you have that situational awareness, or if someone else um, is able to say, "Hey, I heard, I heard three gunshots." Um, in a panicked situation, and for most people, the sound of gunshots will, especially in a crowded area, is going to invoke a sense of panic and can be really hard to like be tracking that accurately. Um and it's also impossible to know uh who those gunshots, who those bullets have hit or if they hit anybody at all. Mm-hmm. Um so that really comes to like the like doing a a patient assessment to make sure that you are are finding all the wounds on that person. But
0: mm-hmm.
1: to go back to the scenario uh you hear gunshots you are you hear that you're like, okay, I'm, I've got my IFAC. I'm ready to respond to this. Um, the first step is to do a scene assessment. So if you've done a medic training, and I highly recommend that people get a 20-hour medic training, uh, street medic training, uh, the first thing that you learn is doing your scene assessment. And this is also what you learn in Wilderness First Aid or Wilderness First Responder, or maybe even like some basic non-Wilderness First Aid classes. Um, And there's five points to it. And I just wanna go through them really briefly because doing a scene assessment is a really important part of responding to any situation. Okay. So there's five points and they have a nice little rhyme to help it easier to remember. One, look out for number one. Uh, That means you're looking out for yourself. You wanna make sure that the scene is safe for you to enter. So in this scenario, you want to see, is there still an active shooter in the area? Um, Is there uh, fast-moving oncoming traffic? Is there a wall of riot police or Proud Boys approaching from down the street? What's the scenario? What's the scene? Is it actually safe for you to enter? Because what you don't want to do while responding is to create a second patient by getting injured yourself. Uh, Two, what happened to you? So you heard gunshots, you see someone lying on the ground. You can assume that this person might've gotten hit by a bullet. Or are you looking around and like, oh, there's a knife lying by them. Maybe they were stabbed or you see a car driving away. Maybe they were hit by a car. This is just your quick initial assessment of what do you think happened to the person Mm -hmm. that you are uh, approaching. So one, look out for number one. Two, what happened to you. Three, don't get any on me. This is about PPE. We're specifically talking about Gloves. Uh, it's important to wear gloves. Uh, it's an important part of an IFAC to have gloves because you don't you want to protect yourself from bloodborne pathogens. And with gunshot wounds, of course, we are talking about usually a large amount of blood. So gloves are very important both to protect yourself and protect the patient from bloodborne pathogens. Even if you're carrying nothing else in a kit, I really recommend that people carry gloves with them. Uh, especially in the time of COVID, just better to protect yourself and other people. Mm -hmm. And I also recommend always getting non-latex gloves because some people have really serious and life-threatening latex allergies.
0: So nitrile gloves specifically, or are there other types?
1: Nitrile gloves are great. Okay. Anything, any medical-grade glove that's non-latex. Okay. Uh, So that's one, look out for number one. Two, what happened to you? three, don't get any on me. Four, are there any more? So this is when you're looking to see how many patients actually are there and also how many other responders are there. Who are the victims and who are your other resources? So you might say, okay, this, I see, uh, you know, this person is coming, running up to me. They're screaming, they're clutching their hand. Maybe they got shot in their hand. Uh, That might be the patient you want to respond to, but Look around and make sure there's not someone lying prone on the sidewalk, not moving, because mm-hmm. that person might be a, a more critically injured person that you should respond to first. Mm-hmm. Or you might see, oh, there's multiple victims, but I also see other medics responding to them. And you can communicate with those people and share, you know, what's your level of training and make sure that the people with the highest level of training are working with the most critically injured patients. Okay. So step four is really about assessing your resources, five, dead or alive. This again is just about your initial assessment of what's going on with the patient. Um, Gunshot wounds can be very grizzly looking, um, but there are, I mean, when you do a more advanced level of training, you learn about definitive signs of death, with the gunshot wound people survive gunshot wounds even really serious wounds um all the time it's not unusual for people to survive even though it's a really severe injury
0: i'm under the impression
1: i would say what was that
0: oh i just i'm under the impression that a majority of at least when people get to the hospital i'm under the impression a majority of people who are hit by handguns survive whereas like with rifles the survivability goes down a lot but i'm I wish I remembered that information more clearly before I interjected it into this conversation. So please continue.
1: Yeah, I don't, I don't know those stats specifically, but I would, I would believe that. Um, and I think in general, dealing with a gunshot wound patient, what you're trying to do is stop the bleeding, mm-hmm. and the faster you're able to do that, the better their chances of survival. And that's what you should focus on, no matter how grisly the injury appears to be. Okay. So that's a five point scene assessment. Um, and you can do all of that while walking quickly up to a patient. You don't have to stop and sort of go through this in a, in a way that's gonna take up a lot of time from your response time. Uh, but it's important to just make sure that you're not creating a second victim. You know how many victims there actually are. You're not contracting bloodborne pathogens or exchanging them. Um, and you've done some sort of like initial assessment of what you think just
0: happened. So you come up to this person, you do the scene assessment, and they are definitely shot once um, what 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 okay. then
1: okay, so uh, I know that what we're really trying to get to here is how to stop the bleeding, mm. but I'm just going to throw in a couple other things because
0: no, no, please as, yeah. a,
1: <laughs> as a street medic trainer, it's hard for me to you know, gloss over some of these other details, mm-hmm. even though it's sort of outside the scope of this interview, perhaps. But um, so before you start treating them, before you start trying to stop that bleed or simultaneously to that, uh, there's just some things about patient interaction that I just want to touch on. Um, and that's that it's important to try to spread a sense of calm. If you run up to someone screaming like, oh, my god i think you got shot well you know you're gonna freak yourself out you're gonna really freak that patient out you're gonna freak out everyone around you so try to approach the system the situation as best as possible with a Mm -hmm. sense of uh calm that will help calm your patient down and that will help calm yourself down as well um introduce yourself to the patient and explain what you're doing while you're doing it Mm -hmm. uh even if you think that that person can't hear you uh, it's possible that they can. And narrating what you're doing and introducing yourself, these will help calm the patient down and give them a sense of uh, just knowing what's going on in that situation rather than receiving this injury. And then all of a sudden there's strange people touching them. They don't know what's going on or who this person is or or what's happening. Um, you just really want to be communicative as possible. And also narrating the steps as you're doing them helps I find helps ground yourself. And also if you're working with a medic buddy helps ground your buddy helps narrate for onlookers what's going on as well. Um, and it's, uh, it's just very helpful to, to be talking and be communicative while you're, while you're working with a patient.
0: So in D um, terms, talking is a free action and you can do it while you take action.
1: Yes, exactly. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay.
1: Um, yeah. Okay. But on to stopping, stopping the bleeding. Oh, wait, there's one other Mm -hmm. thing you also really want to do. Um, and you probably do this as you're approaching your patient, uh, or as you're interacting with them, but someone needs to activate EMS, which is emergency medical services, Mm uh, with a gunshot wound, this patient needs to get to a higher level of care, i.e. a hospital as soon as possible. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're not fixing a gunshot wound in the street. We are stopping the bleeding to give them a longer period of time to get to a a high level of care, to get to surgery or whatever treatment they're going to need in a hospital. Um, So if you've been working on your patient, you've successfully stopped the bleeding, and then you're like, oh, maybe someone (laughs) should call an ambulance. Well, that ambulance could have already could have already been there or that ride to get that person to the hospital could have already been there. This should really be the very first thing that happens. Um,
0: How do you make the decision so between... Sorry, go ahead. Oh, yeah, go on. How do you make the decision between calling for an ambulance versus calling for uh, another protester with a car to transport the person? What goes into that decision?
1: Yeah, so that really depends on what the situation is that you're in if you're in an area where you're behind a police line and you are and you think that an ambulance wouldn't be able to get to you then having transporting that person in a private vehicle either to a hospital or at least outside of that police line Mm -hmm. will be faster and more effective if you're just on a street corner somewhere and you are reasonably sure that an ambulance could get to you there Mm -hmm. then calling an ambulance will probably be faster if someone's sitting there with a car and they're like, the hospital's two blocks away, I can I can get them there. That's a different situation than the hospital's all the way across town. Even if you have to wait longer for an ambulance, the ambulance will be able to get them there faster. And another perk about an ambulance is that they can provide a higher level of care en route to the hospital as well because they're equipped for that. Okay. So that just really depends on the situation that you're in and thinking about um, the CHOP, the Capitol Hill occupied protest zone in Seattle this summer, we saw that play out in a number of different ways, right? With um, people being taken to the hospital for gunshot wounds in private vehicles, in ambulances, and, you know, really a lot of, there's just a lot of different ways that could play out. So many different ways to transport patients to the hospital. An important thing is that um, if you are going to be responding to the gunshot wound, designate someone else to call 911 or activate EMS. So in and instead of just yelling out to a crowd, somebody call 911, you should specifically say designate someone because otherwise mm-hmm. it's likely that a bunch of people will call or nobody will call because they all think someone else is doing it. So you can say, "Hey you in the um pink respirator <laughs> and the blue backpack, call 911." tell them we have a gunshot wound victim on X, Y, and Z corner, and come back and report to me and tell me what they said. Mm-hmm. So that you can get information on expected arrival time, and you also know exactly who's responsible for making that call.
0: Okay. I had an anarchist doctor friend I was talking to about this issue say that they've experienced, or, or basically say that, like, if nothing else happens, the 911 operator Will talk you through like responding to a gunshot wound to stop the bleeding, and was able to talk about a situation that that saved someone's life that that they knew um
1: yeah, absolutely, and I don't think that's something you can expect from dispatch across mm. the board, but i'm but I'm not surprised to hear that, and that is that is really an ideal uh most helpful dispatch operator you could get,
0: okay, so you've told someone to call emergency medical services, and you have done your scene assessment. Now what?
1: Okay, so now you gotta stop the bleed as fast as possible. Um, the real meat of the matter, as you said earlier. So basically how this works is that you just need to find all of the wounds and apply pressure until they stop bleeding. Uh, Finding all of the wounds we already talked about, entrance and exit wounds. Uh, Doing a blood sweep is a great way to find additional wounds. Talking about a blood sweep is sort of outside the scope of this interview, but uh, I recommend people, I'm sure there's good YouTube videos, or if you take a uh, wilderness first responder or a 20-hour street medic training, you'll learn about blood sweeps as well. It's just a technique for sort of examining the patient to find where they're bleeding. Um, But you need to find all of the wounds and expose them down to skin level so that you actually know what you're working with. Um, Because even if you, you know, you might be able to see blood through someone's clothing, but actually cutting or otherwise removing that clothing to see what's going on will just really help you be able to stop that bleed more effectively. Uh, this is so. By- this is
0: where, if you have trauma shears, you use them
1: exactly. This is where you use trauma shears, which are basically just medical scissors that are designed to cut through fabric really quickly. Um, and so, you might be
0: familiar to people from their uh, <laughs> from their bedroom setups.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so, trauma shears are a great thing to have in your iFAC. Uh, with removing clothing, you especially want to watch out for any kind of like waterproof clothing like if someone has on a rain jacket or has on Mm -hmm. rain pants those can collect a large amount of blood and hold it next to the body because they're waterproof so someone might have a major bleed going on and you don't see it through their clothes because they have a Mm -hmm. rain jacket on so especially waterproof clothing make sure that you're removing that or cutting that off uh, and getting down to to skin layer there if you suspect or or just looking underneath those to to see if they do have a wound Okay. Um, okay, so you've got, you've found your wounds, you've exposed them to skin layer, to skin level, um, and now you're trying to stop the bleeding. The first thing you want to do is just apply gauze and apply pressure. Uh, so if you do have a kit with you, this is when you pull out your gauze. You might have compressed gauze. You might have hemostatic gauze, which is like a gauze that is uh, like impregnated with a mineral agent. There's all types of different brand names that people use like uh quick clot or cell or cheeto sam or things like this but it's a hemostatic gauze um or you might just have a regular old roll of gauze or if you don't have a kit with you you might have part of this person's t-shirt that you just ripped off of them or like a piece of a towel or your own shirt or Mm -hmm. something just anything that's absorbent Mm -hmm. that you can kind of you know, ball up or bunch up and put on the wound and apply pressure. Okay. Uh, if it's a larger wound, you might be actually packing that into the wound and holding pressure inside of the wound, trying to get as close to the source of the bleed as possible, which is those arteries or veins that have been, have been clipped or cut. Okay. Um, so you're just putting a shit ton of gauze on it and holding pressure as hard as you can. Okay. And, this may stop the bleed. This may not be enough to stop the bleed. If this isn't enough to stop the bleed, you are then going to sort of step up into applying a higher level of pressure. Um, If you have things like a pressure bandage or even a roll of gauze that you can wrap around uh, to just hold whatever you've put on there already to just push that more strongly into the wound. So you're never taking anything off. okay? Right, because if you're removing a layer of gauze, You're, you know, any clotting that's already happened there, you're just tearing that off. So you're never taking anything off of a wound Mm -hmm. of this type. You're just going to be adding additional layers.
0: Okay, so you were talking about how you never take anything off the wound. You only add things to the wound. For listeners, if, if this gets cut in very awkwardly, basically, there have been a lot of technical difficulties with this particular interview because both of us live off grid and bex is currently in a place consumed by fire which you the listener might also be in a place consumed by fire and smoke so it's been interesting to try and find places to record and so i apologize for any audio quality issues but it feels like this information is worth getting out okay so you are trying to stop the bleed through pressure when you talk about pressure like are you just talking about like you hold this real tight or I've I've seen people talk about it as like like the pressure is probably going to hurt the person that you're doing it to like it's like as hard as you possibly can if necessary or is is that true or is that kind of you know a myth or
1: yeah whatever I would say it's true Whatever amount of pressure is necessary to stop the bleeding Mm -hmm. is the appropriate amount of pressure. Okay. Uh, So that might mean just holding pressure with a hand. We'll get into talking about pressure bandages and tourniquets. It might mean holding pressure with a knee or another part of your body that you can get more leverage with. But whatever it takes to stop the bleeding is the correct amount of pressure.
0: Okay. So, So now what?
1: Okay. So now let's say you've packed the wound you're holding on direct pressure with your gloved hands mm-hmm. and it's still it's still bleeding this isn't enough uh, so now if you if you don't have a kit with you, this is when you can use whatever you do have whether it's a piece of fabric or a uh, you know anything, I don't know anything that you might have with you to actually wrap around that gauze Mm -hmm. to help push that that gauze or whatever you've packed the wound with uh by wrapping it you're pushing it more strongly into the wound and applying that direct pressure uh more more powerfully if you do have an ifac with you and you have a pressure bandage or what's also called a trauma dressing an etd which is emergency trauma dressing an israeli bandage These are all different names for uh, variations on the same product, which is, it's basically like a stretchy elastic um, wrap, kind of like an ace bandage, but it has like a large pad sewn into it. And then it usually has some kind of clip system or Velcro, something to like seal it up.
0: So it's like a super bandaid.
1: Like a kind of like a super bandaid, but it's not, it's not adherent at all.
0: Okay. It has Um, to wrap around itself. Has to wrap around the body. to,
1: Yeah, wrap around the body. So uh, let's say um, our patient has a gunshot wound to the leg. You've packed this with gauze. You've been holding pressure. It's not enough. Now you're going to use your uh, your, uh, pressure bandage, your trauma dressing, or whatever else you have uh, to wrap that. So with the pressure bandage, you're actually just putting that pad over the gauze that you've already put in place and then you just start wrapping it tightly, you know, firmly, Mm -hmm. um, and then clip it on with the Velcro or the clip or whatever, what have you. And having that gauze on underneath is an important part of this because that's what's then being compressed and applying that direct pressure into the wound. So that, that, that's an important first step.
0: Okay. So it's, it's more of a way to squish everything in tight rather than it itself being the thing that applies the it helps something else apply pressure.
1: Yes, it helps something else apply pressure because the the pressure bandage um, is not acting as a tourniquet. So mm-hmm. you should have this on, you know, when it's on at its at its full tightness, you've tightly wrapped it. Uh, that person should still have a distal pulse, which means. A pulse that's further away from the heart than the injury so if this is a you know a gunshot wound to the leg they should still have a pulse at their ankle um they should still have sensation you shouldn't be cutting off the blood flow you're just putting that direct pressure onto the wound okay um this is also the pressure bandage is also really useful for things like um places where you can't use a tourniquet and we'll get into tourniquets in a second Mm -hmm. but you know if someone has a an injury in their groin their abdomen chest a head wound basically anywhere where a tourniquet's not an option your pressure bandage is really the most effective thing that you can use there
0: so i have a question about the gauze packing and maybe the israeli bandage is or the sorry that's the first term i had ever heard them called um yeah that's a common term for it um the pressure bandage is um maybe the answer to this question. My question is you've talked about how there's usually entry and exit wounds. How are you applying pressure to both wounds at the same time if they're on the opposite side of someone's body?
1: Yeah, that is a great question. Um however you can is the <laughs> answer and that might involve uh you know, hopefully if you're hopefully you're there with a buddy, mm-hmm. um as street medics, we always roll with a buddy because Mm -hmm. two heads is better than one Um, and two sets of hands is better as well Uh, or a friend or grab a bystander Mm -hmm. Um, if the patient is you know if if the injury is on an extremity um, on you know an arm or a leg and the patient can they can be applying pressure as well Okay. Um, but the the trauma dressing you could yeah you could be wrapping two wounds with it although there's only one pad on there Uh, Um, so you would put that on on one side but you could you could wrap chew with there
0: okay so so far in terms of the equipment we've used in an if from an ifac we've used nitrile gloves and we've probably used two pairs because you're also giving a pair to your assistant um yeah okay so and then we've used trauma shears and we've used regular gauze and we've used um uh pressure bandages so far Mm -hmm. um okay i just i'm sort of mapping out the ifac as we go i guess
1: yeah and okay let me touch on a couple other kinds of gauze as Mm -hmm. well i think i briefly mentioned these oh like hemostatic um,
0: gauze rather than sorry go ahead
1: yeah the hemostatic gauze you can really use any kind of any kind of gauze that's in your kit so hemostatic gauze like we said, is basically just gauze that's impregnated with like a mineral agent that helps helps promote clotting. Mm-hmm. So basically, it's just gauze that you put on, and it'll help the body stop the bleed mm-hmm. quicker. And in you know in the past, this was often there would be like hemostatic agents in like a and like a granular form, like a powder that people would actually sprinkle in a wound. Mm-hmm. This is like really not recommended um, in today's like in this kind of application. Because it just means that when that person gets to a higher level of care, that's a foreign substance in the wound that mm. the doctors or surgeons who's ever treating them will have to will have to, you know, deal with. Okay. So the gauze getting the impregnated gauze is, is just way simpler okay. for a lot of reasons. Okay.
0: So you've now applied the pressure bandage and the pressure bandage still leaves a distal pulse because it's not a tourniquet. And I guess so. Mm-hmm. Now, if at any of these points you have successfully stopped the bleeding, do you just not move on from there? Do you just be like, okay, as long as I continue to hold this pressure, this person is no longer bleeding, so I just wait for the higher level for them to get to higher level of care. Yes. So you're exactly. basically escalating as necessary f- up this. Okay.
1: Yes, you're escalating your treatments as necessary. If the bleeding stops, then. You've done what you've set out to accomplish, which mm-hmm. is find all of the wounds and apply pressure to stop the bleeding mm-hmm. um, while you're waiting for a high level of care. Now, this is where if you have done a street medic training, wilderness first aid, or you're you know a nurse or a PA or whatever it mm-hmm. is, this is when doing things like starting to take sets of vitals or getting a patient history. These mm-hmm. are great and very helpful things to do while you wait for an ambulance or wait for a higher level of care. But let's say you've put on the pressure bandage and Mm -hmm. the bleeding doesn't stop. Mm -hmm. Now we go to our next escalation, which is using a tourniquet.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, So tourniquets,
0: you can just use a belt. You don't have to be very tight. It doesn't need a windlass. (laughs) And if you do want a real tourniquet, they're like $2. You buy the cheapest one you can get. No, Um, certainly not.
1: You've never been so wrong as now. (laughs)
0: Okay. Um, I'm going to make these jokes because this is my way of just dis- avoiding disassociating, thinking about all this white light that is pouring out of our imaginary victim.
1: Yep. Yep. I hear you. Um, so a tourniquet is basically, I'm sure everyone is familiar with like the basic concept here. its It's something that you apply to a patient to usually an extremity we're talking about arms and legs here Um, and you tighten it down until it cuts off circulation to that extremity and that stops the bleeding because there's no longer any circulation getting to that limb including circulation to the wound Mm -hmm. so this is really our last resort right because it's not good to cut off circulation to any part of the body if you can stop the bleeding and keep circulation this is really ideal But, uh, you know, in a lot of situations, you might need to use a tourniquet. And um, there used to be, uh, you know, really this idea that if you put a tourniquet on, that person's probably going to lose that limb because if they have circulation cut off for any period of time. So it's like dangerous to use a tourniquet at all. Um, This is not really the current understanding. It's certainly fine, good encouraged to use a tourniquet when you need to and there's not the same uh you know idea as there was previously in our sort of medical understanding of if you use a tourniquet that person will uh, lose that limb because thanks to all of the um wars for oil that the u.s has fought all over the world we've learned a lot about combat medicine and uh, there's been a lot of advances in our understanding of of major traumatic injuries and how to respond to them. Okay. So when we're talking about a tourniquet, uh, what I'm talking about specifically is called a CAT or a combat application tourniquet. Um, and specifically the ones that are on the market today are gen seven or like the CAT generation seven or whatever, this is pretty much like the standard of what people are using.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so you pull this out when everything, else, whatever else you have, isn't working. Um, and basically, let me just pull out mine so that I can look at it while I'm talking about it. There, it comes in a little carrying case. I
0: was thinking about pulling out mine at the same time, but it doesn't. Do, yeah, it doesn't do the audience any good if I do that. Whereas
1: tourniquet party here. Okay. So I'm looking at mine right now and it's basically a big Velcro strap. The strap is like maybe an inch and a half wide. Um, it's got a bright red tab on it. So it's, that just makes it easier to, you know, know exactly where the end of the strap is when you're in an emergency situation. And then it's got like a little clip and a rod and the rod, this is also called the windlass, Mm -hmm. and this is the part that you, um, so basically you, you put the Velcro strap around um and we'll talk about placement in a minute and then you just start twisting the rod and that rod actually pulls on a on a band that's inside of the the velcro strap Mm -hmm. to tighten it and tighten it and you just keep tightening it until the bleeding stops and then you clip that rod or the windlass inside the little clip you uh there's usually a little spot to you know velcro that in place and write the time on. Mm -hmm. You should always have a Sharpie in your kit as well, specifically for writing the time that you applied the tourniquet. This is just helpful information for the the hospital to know how long that tourniquet's been on. Okay. And we're never taking a tourniquet off in the field. Once you put a tourniquet on, you are not taking that off. That's only coming off in, in a hospital setting.
0: Okay. So where do you put the tourniquet?
1: Okay. The tourniquet... So you want to apply it at skin level
0: Mm
1: -hmm. uh so we're not applying it over clothes just because applying it at skin level will help you get that uh really tight application for it to be effective Mm -hmm. so we're applying it at skin level and the ideal placement is like two or three inches above the wound Mm -hmm. but with a gunshot wound um it's often it can be hard to tell where exactly the wound is or where exactly the blood is coming from Mm -hmm. um and in a situation like this instead of trying to you know you don't want to accidentally go too low too close to the wound because it won't be effective so in an ideal world we're going two or three inches above the wound but really you can just default to what's referred to as high and tight Mm -hmm. which means you're going um basically just below whatever the like next joint is so if this is on my you know somewhere on my calf we're going just below the knee if this is somewhere on my thigh we're going like just below the hip joint Um, and you want to make sure that it's not over the wound you also want to make sure that you're not trying to apply the tourniquet over a joint because Mm -hmm. that also won't be effective okay um and then you just again so you put it on either two or three inches above or high and tight and then you are uh you know twisting it twisting that rod until until the bleeding stops
0: okay
1: if this is not effective (laughs) if you tighten it as much as you can Mm -hmm. and it's still bleeding you can apply a second tourniquet a second tourniquet would go directly above meaning closer to the heart
0: Mm -hmm. uh
1: it would go directly above the first tourniquet and Using two tourniquets can also be useful on someone who has larger limbs, mm-hmm. and so the fr- the first tourniquet the tightening might be less effective, so putting a second tourniquet on can help in that situation
0: as well okay now, maybe this is a if I'm shot and I'm by myself, which is obviously not my favorite version of the situation that could possibly happen uh, mm-hmm. if i if i if I'm shot in the leg and it's bleeding profusely. It seems to me mm-hmm. that I would probably kind of cut straight to the tourniquet rather than try to apply pressure out of like, I don't know, lack of confidence of my ability to apply pressure to my own leg or something like that. Um, and it, it would seem to me to be like the safer bet to just use a tourniquet am I, am I off base is this like, what would you recommend if you're shot in the limb and you're by yourself?
1: <laughs> if you're shot in the limb and you're by yourself mm-hmm. um well i hope that the situation doesn't happen to any of us and i would say that whatever you have on you that you feel like will be most effective mm-hmm. is is the way to go mm-hmm. i mean and you'll be looking at your wound you'll have an idea of of how severe the bleeding looks mm-hmm. obviously a gunshot wound is serious but if you have your whole kit laid out in front of you
0: mm-hmm.
1: and it's a, and you think hey this pressure bandage might be effective. Mm -hmm. go for it um if you're looking at your wound and all you have is either a handful of gauze or a tourniquet fucking go for the tourniquet definitely um and obviously in all of these situations there's a lot of different factors and everyone i mean we just need to use our best judgment and our best analysis of the situation Mm -hmm. but the um the ideal is to is that you use the tourniquet when whatever else you have isn't isn't working
0: okay i know that a a lot of um self-defense training uh focuses around the idea that if you carry a gun carry a tourniquet and it it seems Mm -hmm. like maybe like if you carry a gun carry an ifac is a a better idea in general but there's definitely a lot of people who uh are just carrying a tourniquet if they're if they're carrying a gun
1: yeah and carrying just a tourniquet way way better than carrying nothing at all um if you're going to carry one thing Mm -hmm. a tourniquet is a great thing to carry if you want to really be prepared and carry this small pocket-sized kit just just get the whole ifac Mm -hmm. um this also touches back to what you mentioned before around oh right i should just get this two dollar tourniquet (laughs) the the going rate for an actual quality tourniquet is around 30 dollars for this cat this like gen 7 cat combat application tourniquet Mm -hmm. um you can find stuff online that's a lot cheaper than that Mm -hmm. but there's a high possibility that it's going to break when you use it there's a lot of kind of like bootleg emergency medical supplies available from sketchy dealers on the internet Mm -hmm. Um, and it's way better to just get your stuff for an from a place that has a good reputation um, and is selling it for like the going rate rather than trying to find your like bargain basement um, medical supplies.
0: Can we, um, can we link into the show notes? I know that you compiled a list of specific links to all of the items that you're talking about today. Can I, can we put that in the show notes?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Please do.
0: Great. Okay. So tourniquets. uh, So that, that covers like limbs, What else is in an IFAC? We theoretically now covered enough to stop most bleeding, right? Um, What else else is necessary?
1: So I guess the other things that I would want to touch on are gunshot wounds to the chest and then also to the head. Mm -hmm. Um, So the chest, uh, gunshot wound to the chest is a little bit of a different scenario because then we're dealing with the lung's and so, what you're worried about there is what's called a sucking chest wound.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, one because it sucks. Yeah, that's, that's and that two that <laughs> because the risk there is that. Okay, so usually your trachea is the only way that air gets in and out of your body. If you have a gunshot wound to your to your chest cavity, mm-hmm. um, or two, you know, an entrance and an exit all of a sudden you have two more ways that air is getting into your chest cavity that's not supposed to happen mm-hmm. that can build up pressure around your lungs and actually cause your lung cause a lung to collapse
0: oh so even if um, the bullet doesn't go through the lungs it causes this pressure problem
1: right so you Brutal. it's it doesn't really matter if the lung is actually pierced or not this is not going to be part of your assessment okay. but really anything from like the belly button up on mm-hmm. the front or the back you want to be worried about a sucking chest wound and treating it accordingly.
0: We finally hit the part where my squeamishness is kicking in so hard, but please continue.
1: <laughs> just, just remember the white light. Yeah, We're just talking about the white light here.
0: Um, so the sucking, section, the sucking chest wound is caused by the pressure differential or pressure air coming in through the bonus holes that are now in your chest
1: exactly and building up that pressure
0: Mm
1: -hmm. uh which your lungs can't withstand that's not what Mm -hmm. they're designed for um in general chest wounds and abdominal wounds will um bleed a lot less than uh than wounds to the extremities and this is because in your chest you have a lot less like surface level arteries Mm -hmm. um and you're more worried about those internal injuries with the abdomen Again, there's less sort of surface level arteries and the the issue with, um, hold on, there's a car backing up to me. One sec. Uh, right, so I think I was saying with abdominal injuries, we're worried with chest injuries, we're worried about uh, a sucking chest wound. With abdominal injuries, you're worried about sort of massive internal bleeding happening in mm-hmm. a way that you can't, that's an internal injury, so you can't directly put pressure on that wound. So these are the reasons why, uh, gunshot wounds to your chest and an abdomen are uh, can be way more deadly or more lethal than wounds to the extremities, just because it's a lot harder to sort of like mitigate the effects of it.
0: Okay. So but how do you mitigate the effects? This is why we
1: carry in our IFAC chest seals. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, yeah, this is something that used to be like only the most extreme esoteric street medic would carry in their kit uh but now now everyone should just carry see, two now everyone should carry two and you carry two right because of an entrance and an exit wound
0: mm-hmm.
1: um just stopping one is not enough but basically what a chest seal is is an occlusive dressing which means a dressing that the air can't get through mm-hmm. and you're just those what you referred to i think as bonus bonus holes mm-hmm. yeah in the speed in holes the that chest. make you go faster Mm-hmm. you just want to close those up so that uh. it goes back to just having the one hole the trachea where the air is getting in mm-hmm. um and you can use a, a chest seal which i'll talk about in a second you can also use like a gloved hand makes a great occlusive dressing okay uh the the plastic wrapper that you just took your gauze out of makes a great occlusive dressing okay basically anything any like impermeable thing
0: a plastic shopping bag
1: a plastic shopping bag yeah that's great okay um a chest seal is great because let me pull one of these out so i can look at it while i talk about it a chest seal is great because they're vented so basically it means that there's a one-way vent Mm -hmm. um so air can get out and it can't go back in So the Uh, pressure can like
0: regulate itself or something.
1: Yeah, it can regulate itself and it can make sure that um, pressure isn't building up inside the chest. Mm. Uh, So if you're using, uh, when you put a chest seal on, it should immediately be easier for the patient to breathe. Mm -hmm. Um, If they're, if they, If they have like an increased shortness of breath or difficulty breathing and you're holding you know a gloved hand that plastic wrapper anything like that Mm -hmm. um it might mean that pressure is building up and you can just lift up one side of it to let that vent and then close it up again and that should help and so with with these wounds with wounds to the chest we're not well there's usually a lot less bleeding so you just wipe the blood wipe whatever blood there is off and then put that chest seal over it we're not going to be wrapping this we're not going to be putting a pressure bandage on because you need to be able to continue to monitor uh that seal and make sure that it doesn't need to be vented if if the patient has an increased shortness of breath
0: okay so because that becomes a more important issue than specifically bleeding with chest wounds
1: right because we we in general just don't see as much as much bleeding with chest wounds.
0: okay okay so, what about abdomen, abdominal? What if you get shot in the stomach? Um, You're saying <laughs> An abdominal that wound. internal bleeding is the issue with abdominal, ab- terrible wounds, ab- like the snowman ab- abdominal. I'm yes,
1: a, the abdominal snowman of abdomen, terrible sucking wounds. Um, yeah.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh right. So this is another place where it can be hard to apply direct pressure Mm -hmm. um and what we're really worried about is uh that internal bleeding so if someone's not having an external bleed then you don't really have something that you can apply pressure to and you really just need to get that person to a higher level of care as fast as as fast as possible
0: is that as fast as like i'm under the impression that people can bleed out from an arterial bleed like very rapidly like they usually don't but it can happen in some number of seconds or minutes that you know and i don't um is it less of a concern in terms of like oh god this needs to happen like right 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 now with an abdominal wound or is that just please try not to get shot in the stomach as a general rule
1: i mean the general rule is please try not to get shot
0: Mm -hmm. oh interesting
1: um (laughs) i know this might be this might be news to some people.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Please try not to get shot. It's not a good scene.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but with abdominal wounds, if there is, you know, if they are presenting with external bleeding, you're going to be doing the same steps of applying gauze. Um, if they're not, mm-hmm. it doesn't mean that it's not serious mm-hmm. and they just need to get to a higher level of care Okay. because, you know, to be able to, to get to that arterial bleed that's happening or that you know organ or what whatever Mm -hmm. is going on inside Mm -hmm. we can't do that from the outside we can't stop that bleed from the outside
0: okay okay so necks and heads
1: necks and heads well it may come as no surprise we're not going to use a tourniquet on these wounds this is not a good idea (laughs) (laughs) um like any other wounds, we're going to be applying pressure, mm-hmm. packing the wound, using a pressure bandage. Um, I wanted to mention these wounds specifically, just mm-hmm. because uh, emotionally and visually, it can be a lot more grisly to see. Um, but like any other wound, just... Sorry, this is little pickup truck going It's okay like any other wound with a head wound we're applying pressure we're using a pressure bandage we're packing the wound with gauze we're doing whatever we can to stop the bleeding and getting them to a higher level of care as soon as possible
0: okay Whew. okay so that is there uh okay so in your ifac as a result of what you've talked about I'm I'm doing this thing where I'm I'm going over it so that you can correct me into, I don't mm-hmm. know. So, you want two pairs of nitrile gloves because you want for you and a buddy to keep uh-huh. uh, blood off of you, and then after that, so then you're doing your scene assessment. You're coming up. You're acting as calmly as you can. You're looking for the entry and exit wound, if it all if they exist, and then you're packing ideally hemostatic gauze into. The wound. And if not, you're using basically anything else you have. Now, is this a place where if you don't have any gauze, you would be using like t shirts and stuff like that?
1: Yeah, definitely. Because, I mean, gauze is great, especially Mm -hmm. if it's packed and it's sterile, but Mm -hmm. we're more concerned with just stopping the bleeding by any means necessary than. Mm -hmm worrying about oh my sweaty t-shirt that i'm packing into this wound. you just have to stop the bleeding it's mm-hmm. a, it's a life or death situation
0: okay so you're packing the wound and you're applying a fuck ton of pressure or as much pressure as is necessary as much of the pressure as you're capable of causing with your body if that doesn't work you escalate to a pressure bandage and which you will also have in your kit and if that doesn't work you escalate to a tourniquet if it's on a limb and so you want all of those things in your kit. And then also because there's a chance that someone will get shot in the chest. And I also know that in self-defense training and in general, people are trained to shoot at center mass with guns. Um, I don't know whether that yep. actually translates to most uh, gun injuries being in the chest and abdomen, but it, it certainly seems like that would be the case. Uh-huh. Uh, you always use a chest seal if you have it available on bullet wounds to the chest is that fair to say yeah okay Um, and you apply the chest seal after you've packed the wound with gauze no ah okay I missed that part so I know that you said okay so but you don't want with the chest seal you're not applying pressure on you're not applying like pressure bandages on top of the chest seal because you need the air to regulate right are you just applying pressure with like your body
1: you are uh, not really applying pressure to a ah, chest wound. Okay, you're you wipe you wipe it clean. Mm-hmm. Wh- you wipe the wound clean with whatever gauze you have, or mm-hmm. um, you want to get it cleaner and as dry as possible.
0: Mm-hmm. You
1: slap that uh, ideally vented chest seal on top, mm-hmm. um, and make sure that it's you know you press it down firmly. Make sure there's a good seal, or you're holding with your gloved hand, mm-hmm. um, and That is, that is what you're, that is what you're doing. You don't want to be applying, uh, I mean, if you're using your gloved hand or you're using like a wrapper, you can be, you know, obviously pressing that down firmly Mm -hmm. on a vented chest seal. Uh, If you're applying strong pressure to it, you're also blocking the vents at that point and sort of uh, stopping that part from working.
0: Okay. So i feel like we're you know we're coming up on well i don't even know how long it's been because there's been so many starts and stops but Mm -hmm. uh is there anything specific about gunshot wounds that also need to be addressed or if not i guess i would say like how does someone listening continue their education besides just listening to a one-hour podcast at some point in the past
1: yeah i would say definitely continue your education this is i mean there's a lot more that i would have loved to go into if this was a a training it's hard to do without uh actually looking at people but i hope that this serves as a good overview of what to start thinking about what to be what to be thinking like okay i need to learn about taking pulses i need to learn about how to do a blood sweep i need to learn how to use this equipment and where to Mm -hmm. find it um i highly recommend that folks do a 20 hour street medic training if possible. A wilderness first aid or wilderness first responder training are great as well. Um, there's also a lot of really good videos online from like the people's community medics in the Bay Area, uh, North American Rescue, which sells a bunch of products uh, like tourniquets and pressure bandages and has demos for those things. Mm-hmm. Uh, stop the bleed trainings. There's a lot of training that you can do online, especially about how to use this different equipment, um, which might be helpful, particularly in COVID times when doing these in-person trainings is a lot uh, a lot harder to do than previously.
0: Okay. And I guess to, to kind of sort of bring it full circle, one of the first things I asked you about was about your experience responding to a gunshot wound at a demonstration. And you mentioned that it was a, a, a fairly traumatic event and so in order to dig up that trauma and make you talk about it in front of people for anyone who's listening i definitely cleared this with bex before <laughs> um do you do you have like thoughts about how you have like like tips and tricks for surviving the trauma of being around gun violence um, yeah
1: uh no I don't have tips and tricks for surviving the trauma of being around gun violence but yeah. I will say that being prepared mm-hmm. and having your kit with you and knowing feeling empowered in how you'd be able to respond
0: mm-hmm.
1: is just really it's it's incredibly helpful and makes me feel more grounded and centered uh being in demonstration settings now particularly if I know there's guns around because I feel like okay this time I'm really ready to respond mm-hmm. you know um in in an even more helpful way than I did the first time around and you know hopefully i'll never be in that situation again but um but it's good it's empowering to feel ready and i guess this is why you know talking more about my history of how i got into medicing mm-hmm. this is why i uh sort of really became interested in street medicing in the first place was having the experience of almost dying from a concussion that i didn't know i had and then being like wow I almost died. And I had no idea that that was going on. Like, whoa, I need to be more empowered. And I want the folks around me to be more empowered. And actually just like knowing what's going on with our bodies and being able to give and receive care, um, including day-to-day care and Mm -hmm. also including emergency response outside of the, you know, professionalized, institutionalized structures. Because especially now we're seeing a lot of really violent encounters um you know involved with the types of political activism and organizing that's going on and um you know we keep us safe so it's the more people who are prepared to respond the safer we all are
0: that makes sense i definitely i know that i kind of have let my prioritization of this particular skill set lag uh i used to study this more actively when i was more involved in like environmental direct action, tree sitting and things like that, because it, Mm -hmm. you know, because it was very necessary because I could fall out of a tree by myself somewhere, you know, Um, and I've kind of let that sit by the wayside because it's it's hard, it's scary. Um, But you actually did touch in terms of how to respond to trauma. One of the main things that has come up in interviews on this show and has also been just like my understanding of how trauma works. And one of the reasons I'm so into preparedness is that that sense, that sense of agency and going through traumatic events with agency seems to be like, I've, I've read pop science that claims the studies claim that uh, (laughs) responding to things with agency is one of the main ways to avoid further down the road problems with trauma. And yeah, I'm, even in like weird small ways where, you know, when you're sitting in a jail cell, if you come up with a plan, like this is how I'm going to talk to my lawyer or this is how I'm going to get a spoon from the guard and dig myself to freedom. Whatever your plan is, <laughs> I'm, I'm under the impression that having plans during traumatic events and like moving forward with them is one of the main things to do. And also for myself, and this is sort of, well, it's related. I have a lot of anxiety issues that's related to trauma, but it's also in terms of preparing for trauma. One of the reasons I'm so into preparedness is because I'm able, by and large, to not worry about certain things because, not because I can handle them, but because I know that I've done the work to handle them as best as possible if they happen, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's possible, it seems to me that we can fixate on the scary, bad things that can happen to us, but we can also think about them in ways that are not quite as fixated and allow that to kind of let our minds rest. That's my hypothesis. I don't know if you've, if that has been working for you or.
1: Yeah, that absolutely resonates with me. And I feel like the more uh, prepared I feel specifically around gunshot wounds, but also in terms of other, you know, emergency medical situations i feel like the more prepared i feel the calmer i feel about those scenarios and also i've been doing some online trainings and i'm planning for a in-person you know specific gunshot wound specific trainings uh here in my local community and that also makes me feel safer knowing that okay here's 10 or 20 or 30 other people who are in my community who will also be able to respond to this and Mm -hmm. feeling like both having the knowledge and then seeing that decentralize and, and generalize Mm -hmm. um, feels really powerful as well.
0: Well, thanks so much for braving smoke and random people confused as to why you're parked by the side of the road to (laughs) go somewhere where you have service enough to, to talk with me. Uh, I appreciate it. Is there any, anything else you need to, you want to shout out or, you know, any of your own projects that you you want to draw attention to
1: uh i don't think so not right now but um yeah thanks so much for having me on the show it was really nice chatting with you and and i'm just excited for more people to feel confident and empowered responding to gunshot wounds and hopefully never have to but
0: that's here we, here we fucking go cool here we fucking go that is <laughs> that's what the podcast should have been called <laughs> Thanks for listening to here. We fucking go a ostensibly weekly, but clearly not weekly podcast. I'm your host, Margaret Kiljoy. And if you want to support this show, you can support me on Patreon. My Patreon is patreon.com slash Margaret Kiljoy. And there's lots of stuff. There's like at this point, about 38 zines that you get and things like that. Um, And in particular, I'd like to thank Chris and Nora and Haas the dog and Kirk and Willow and Natalie, Sam, christopher shane the compound and m for making this show possible and i more than that want to thank everyone who's out there providing mutual aid and confronting fascism and doing all of this crazy important and terrifying work because we need to um we're we're the only hope we have